Hey everyone, and welcome to the April Open System Podcast. My name is Landon Mascareñas, and I'm with you here from springtime in Colorado. It's blossoms, sunny skies, an occasional snowstorm. That's how we roll here in Colorado. Really excited to bring you a conversation today from Massachusetts. I got a chance to visit with some exceptional colleagues of mine who I got to meet through the Flamboyant Family Engagement Program, Ann Walsh and Glennie Sanchez, two amazing entrepreneurs who are working in an organization called 1647, which we'll talk about a unique name, unique charge, unique purpose in the Massachusetts education landscape. Both of them coming together as mothers of kids in the system, working to think about what does it mean to train educators, train school leaders to do high-impact family engagement activities. There's a lot to learn from Ann and Glennis in this segment. You're going to learn about why they founded the organization, how they think about their roles through an identity lens, what they're thinking about in the next pivot of their organization, and how they're trying to incentivize and build capacity of school leaders and teachers to do high-impact family engagement activity. I think this is going to be a really important conversation for those of you out here out there who are starting family engagement organizations, who are running family engagement or open system organizations, and for you to consider some of the lessons that 1647 has already learned um, in their brief but powerful um, time they've had impacting the Massachusetts landscape. So uh, with no further ado, Glynis and Anne. Hey everyone, how you guys doing? Living the dream. We're great. Doing great. Awesome. <laughs> so good. I'm really excited to be with you all today. We're in Dorchester. Massachusetts, mm-hmm. yep, really Fields cool Corner. space, Fields Corner, on the, mm-hmm. just off the red line. Mm-hmm. I think there's a storm blowing in. That's right. It's opening day, and it's 37 degrees out. Perfect. Oh, it's opening day today. It is. Yes. Oh, man. It's, I think it's opening day on Friday or Saturday in Colorado. Clearly, I'm not a huge uh, baseball fan, but it's supposed to snow. Yeah. So that's okay. Well done. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> That's a theme this year. I think they may have gone a little early. Yeah. That's right. Hot cocoa for today. Yes. Same way. Yes. <laughs> Instead of ice cream, I think they yes. are having hot cocoa right. at the vendors. Yeah. Uh, we're here at the offices of 15, 1647 in uh, Massachusetts, which is a family engagement organization with Ann Walsh and Glynis Sanchez. Thank you guys for being here with us today. Thanks for coming. So let's begin by uh, introducing yourselves and uh, what you do at 1647. Okay, um, so I'm Ann Walsh, and uh, I'm a co-founder of 1647. Um, lately, we've been calling me the chief of family engagement, but it's always sort of fluid. Um, and I oversee the different program elements of our work uh, and the sort of organizational strategy. And I'm Glennis uh, Sanchez, and I serve as a director of research and knowledge management. And uh, I bring a special hat into the work because I'm also a parent at Lawrence Public Schools, which is one of the districts that we work with. So um, I oversee the research pieces of the organization and seeing what the impact of our strategies are, and also a lot of visioning for the future. Mm-hmm. So I bring different hats into the work so that all hats. come up, you know, they come together nicely yeah. as a parent and as a researcher and uh, uh, someone that lives in the community where we work. Mm-hmm. 
So let's kind of begin by talking about 1647 and what you all do. You know, we first got to meet each other during the Flamboyant uh, National Engagement Fellowship, yep. uh, which is a pretty incredible opportunity. And I was really, I think you guys were the only organization in the room that was already a pre-existing established family engagement organization in the fellowship. And I think I was always pretty intrigued by that. Mm. Why did that get started? How did it get started? Who was in the room? You know, what were you seeing in the space that compelled 1647 to form? And of course, you have to weave in the cool story of why you have the name 1647. Right, okay. So I'll, I'll weave in. I won't just lead with that. But um, so... 1647 was born out of uh, frustration, probably, as much as anything. <laughs> um, back in 2013, um, I was serving as the chief of staff for John Conley. He was a city councilor who was chair of the mm-hmm. Committee on Education for the City Council for Boston. Uh, and he ran for mayor on an education platform. Um, in 2013, and we lost. We tried really hard, but we lost. Okay, really close. Yeah, 4,000 yeah, votes, which is really close yeah. in a big city, um, but nonetheless. So afterwards, we knew that the work we really wanted to do was around schools, um, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of things around schools. So we really spent some time uh, thinking about what space we felt compelled to work in. Um, And we reflected on the fact that when we were in City Hall, we would get calls almost daily, definitely daily, many calls sometimes within a day, um, from families who had frustrations about what was going on with their kids' school, right? So for instance, the other day I was at my own child's school now, four or five five years later, and uh, I introduced myself in a meeting. And after the meeting, a mom came up to me and said, Oh, I'm so glad to finally meet you. In 2012, you helped my kid get into a school that he needed for his IEP, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. she was like, I can't believe I'm finally meeting you because her other child and my child are in the same school now. Um, So we were doing that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. People were showing up at our office with their child's IEP and saying, I don't know where else to go. My pastor sent me here because I don't understand what's happening. Or my kid is being bullied. Or my transportation Mm -hmm. is crazy. And, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I never know where my kid's bus is, whatever. Yeah, so what we figured out was, you know, if families are coming to their uh, elected official <laughs> to deal with stuff having to do with their child's oh, yeah. school, there's a real trust gap yeah. going on. And often they would have some trust somewhere with someone in their building, mm-hmm. but the, the systems weren't really in place for families and the schools to communicate well yeah. and serve kids as a team. And so we were often acting as advocates to try to untangle problems and mm-hmm. get kids and families what they needed. Um, and we really realized no one else was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we said, well, what if we worked on helping schools be better at doing that yeah. and building those that trust there instead of families feeling like they had to go t- to an elected official or some other organization? Uh, so we're a, a school-facing organization. We don't work with families. We work with schools and practitioners to try to improve their practices that will build relationships and trust with families so that when challenging situations arise, there's already a relationship and there's already trust and folks feel um, empowered and they feel like they have the capacity and the skills they need to engage with families in real partnership. So that's sort of the 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 why of Mm -hmm. the organization's birth. So John and I started the organization with that in mind and then we kind of looked around for best practices 
um, and learned a lot from Parent Teacher Home Visit Project out of Sacramento. Um, and Flamboyant was really great about sharing their uh, their knowledge and expertise. And so we modeled a lot of our early work on the both of those organizations' work. Um, oh, and why are we called 1647? That's right. Because uh, everyone had already used all the names that began with like family or school or educator, student, student yeah. alliance, partnership, yada, yada. Um, and we were looking for something that would be a conversation starter, yeah. right? And so 1647 was the year that the then colony of Massachusetts passed a law that compelled communities to provide public education. Uh, So it's the birth year of public education uh, in the United States before it was the United States. States. Um, And so that's, you know. That that always, I I think I I haven't met anybody who hasn't asked, what is 1647? Why are you called a number? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a really powerful part of your narrative, actually, that you're calling on the kind of historical connection and commitment we have to public education right. as a foundation for the democracy in this community, which goes back to your questions around and wonderings about trust and your commitment to building trust. Right. Because we see this mm-hmm. kind of all over the country is that, you know, in a lot of places, there's been such a depletion of trust mm-hmm. in the public education system for a variety of reasons, you know, closures, turnarounds, low performance, mm-hmm. you know, failure to even engage people in their native language, that the trust reservoir is so depleted mm. that um, that like that the spirit of democracy and cooperation can't really flourish at a school because that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. or it's been depleted. Mm-hmm. And do you guys see that in your work in your different communities? When you come in, are you assessing kind of the where people are at in terms of their relationships with parents and families and then trying to diagnose how to move forward with them? Or how, how does the approach work? I think I'll speak from from my experience as a, as a parent in Lawrence. I think... For, for many families that have kids now, they also bring a, their histories with their schools, yeah. like how mm-hmm. they experience their schools, um, and they bring that as up front. Yeah. So we take that into account, like what is the history of the families that have gone through the public school system? Mm-hmm. And in a city like Lawrence, you have second and third generation families who were educated in the city. Mm-hmm. So even before you open up the, the school for a family, they're already bringing very negative stories mm-hmm. uh, yeah. with the school system. Right. So that is definitely part of assessing what has been the history of relationship building between mm-hmm. school and family. I love that because I think sometimes we go into schools or people will go into schools and they'll say, here's what this looks like right now, what are we gonna do about it? But they don't look mm-hmm. at what's gone on, mm-hmm. what the past and background, right. all the history of reform agendas or the different situations or context that have happened. Um, so when 1647 works with a school or works with a school district or, what, you know, do you, you do that assessment, you do that diagnostic, and then typically what do you begin to do with um, the, the, the school? So here's where we're in a really interesting yeah. pivot Tell me all that. point right now. Um, so what we have been doing is uh, schools express their interest we have conversations with them to assess to the best of our ability their readiness yeah. uh, to do the work. Um, and then we had been starting with an approach of training the whole school on uh, relationship building home visits practice and then continuing to stay with that school and coach and add on other practices. Um, and we've learned some things from that experience. I'd say we learned 
that readiness is a very difficult thing to identify early in a relationship. Um, We learned that starting folks with what can be considered a a heavy lift of a practice such as home visiting, it's an incredible, like it's an incredibly high yield practice. Um, It's the most effective practice for building trust and relationship, but it's very demanding of the practitioner, um, both emotionally uh, and sort of getting after all their assumptions and biases all at once, right? So you're asking them to... Yeah, (laughs) so it's a pretty high wall for folks to get over as their first thing they're being asked to do. Um, And because part of the model is that it's voluntary, a lot of people opt out. Yeah. Right. So we, we've been using this swimming pool analogy mm-hmm. of what we've been doing is putting everyone in the deep end mm-hmm. and then some folks swim mm-hmm. and some folks are drowning and we're rescuing them and pulling them out. And then they're sitting on the side of the pool and saying, I hate water. I'm never going in there again. You can't make me. And then you have other folks who stand on the side and are like, I, you're not, I'm not getting in there. Yeah. Right. So that's a great metaphor. There's a lot of challenge to that as our opening experience right because then some folks are never coming back to the pool um and so we along with that we're using a lot of philanthropy resources to be able to do deep coaching at schools and sometimes we're doing deep coaching that then is only really um impacting that small number of teachers who are in the game Mm -hmm. right in the pool so um we've decided through a pretty long and comprehensive strategic planning process. Inspired by our learning at the Flamway on Foundation, right? right? So we took ourselves through a design mm -hmm. thinking protocol. Um, And do you want to talk a little bit about that experience and learning? We we took exactly what we we did through the the fellowship and think about where we were at that point and does this model work for us? And um, we decided to switch to a fee for a fee for service model, where we will then give um, people an opportunity to be on the low end, you know, of the of the pool and start getting their feet wet. Yeah, shallow um, water. Yeah, yeah, shallow water. <laughs> starting to sort do some bias. Yeah, yeah, bias. Yeah. Uh, some bias work and uh, understanding the why of family engagement before they jump into the deep of. You know, home visiting. Right. So, well, well, you know, it's interesting. I really appreciate this complexity. I want to dig into it a little bit more in terms mm-hmm. of how you think your new approach and how, what you learned. I think it's, it's so powerful because I, I think that as, you know, we're in this political moment in our country right now, I think a lot of people look at home visits and say, you know, this is bigger than a family engagement strategy. This is really an, like an equity. Mm-hmm. This is a really, this is an equity strategy. Mm-hmm. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's a way to interrupt biases, shift people's mindsets, mm-hmm. like you were mm-hmm. saying. But there's so much we have to do to get people ready for that jump. Right. It's not as simple mm-hmm. as saying, hey, go visit one of your parents. And you want it to be a do-no-harm strategy, right? right? So right. folks have to be prepared That's right. to do it in a way that won't actually damage right. a relationship. Because Which I think the training and the stuff that PTHB does out of Sacramento is great, but the teachers who opt in are ready. That's right. right? And so we're trying to think about getting everybody uh-huh. to get their feet wet and then moving at their own pace to get to the deep end while nobody is opting to get out of the pool because it's too scary or too hard or too expensive, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It can be so expensive. Like pool membership 
can keep people from coming too. Right. So mm-hmm. we need it to be as accessible as possible. Yeah. You only can swim for open swim for an hour. Fine. This is what we can do in an hour. Let's try that. And yeah. then hopefully you'll come back and mm-hmm. we'll try some more and we'll have another mm-hmm. conversation. And if they, you want instruction, if you want some coaching, then yeah. we can do some coaching, but we're not going to be in your school every week. You're going to have to do some of that work, but maybe we do a once a month executive coaching session where we yeah. look at your big plan you wrote and think about okay well, how are you doing on that where are you stuck how can we help yeah. can we connect you with other schools in our network who have had success so a little bit of a lighter touch but really empowering folks to go at their pace and learn from other schools in our network oh, that's really powerful. so it's yeah. a it's less resource intensive for us um and because we m- we're moving from philanthropy to fee-for-service we're there's two benefits to that one uh it it really gets schools invested right off the top because yeah. it's hard for schools to say no to free things, right? Yeah. So if they have to pay, it's, then you yeah. know that it's a priority for them, and that's mm-hmm. an indicator of readiness. Yeah. Um, but it also allows us to be responsive just to one customer, yeah. right? And philanthropy is wonderful, and we wouldn't be here without it, and we're incredibly grateful for mm-hmm. all of the philanthropy that we've received and the confidence people have shown through their investment. Mm-hmm. And that's allowed us to learn in a way that we now feel confident we can respond to what schools need directly Mm -hmm. and that we have a value proposition that they'll invest in for themselves, right? So we're hopeful that that will happen. Now, this is, talk about, like, leap of faith. We're like, okay, like, if we get work, we earn money, and then we get paid, and we get to live our lives and feed our families. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, there's no salary coming from anywhere else, yeah. right? So this is a big entrepreneurial yeah. jump for us, um, but we feel like for the organization's sustainability long-term, mm-hmm. we have to go through this very sort of frightening and painful interim period mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. while we kind of figure out how to reach the, the market. And it's not, you know, this is, we're going to remain a nonprofit, and yeah. someday hopefully there'll be a, a philanthropy relationship that will allow us to, support and innovation in schools um do a little bit of both yeah Mm -hmm. but for now like we just kind of need to get get ourselves out there in a new and scary way but we think in the long term it'll be good that's really interesting that's a big pivot it is well the the comment about the throwing people in you know in the deep water made me think of what happens after the teacher learns something in a home visit like how did you bring that back into the classroom so it's not just the fact that you have the home visit itself but what do you do with that mm-hmm. afterwards how mm-hmm. do, do yeah. how did you reflect on your practice as a teacher and how do you incorporate that into your into your day-to-day right mm-hmm. well, the bigger practice so yeah. we're really helping folks build some of their other practices and mm-hmm. mindsets to see families as partners to have communication with families to share mm-hmm. data um, so that's all the content we're really going to work on with them now if a school comes to us we'll say okay well what's going on what do you want to do you want to make sure that your parent-teacher conferences are effective? Okay, let's do a workshop just on that. Then you want to think about your events and whether they're including all families and whether they're culturally responsive? Okay, let's do that. You want to look at how you're communicating with families over time. Are some kids getting a lot of contacts and some families aren't getting any? What are the drivers of when you're making contact? And so we can use data and use 
sort of experiences with them to help them build strategies around positive communication, proactive communication, equity in their communication strategies, right? So we want to do those things, and that will build a culture in a school that will let them engage then in home visiting as a gold standard practice in a way that will impact more families. Right? But you're, you're ramping them up to it. Yes, And you're exactly. also asking them to put skin in the game, to also make commitments of time and dollars yes. as a school to signal their willingness and readiness as kind of a, a leading indicator yes. for their mindset. The last thing we want to do is drop a gold standard best practice, like you said, on a school that, oh, it's awesome, we want to do family engagement, but then they don't actually really do it. If they right. do it, like they're actually sending folks backwards or reifying negative right. biases about parents and families, that's the last thing we want. Right. And we, I mean, our school partners have done great work. We're not in any way saying they haven't, but we're recognizing the hurdles yeah. that are existing for them to do that work. Yeah. And we know from them, oh, if we had known this before we tried that. So we're trying to sort of um, realign the way we enter schools and work mm-hmm. with them to allow them to have a good setup yeah. so that they're more successful. Okay, Not that they that. haven't been successful, but they've been successful in spite of uh, the challenges, levels, challenges, and we'd like to make their success more attainable and sustainable long Oh, that's term. really exciting. Right? Well, I mean, I think that's a, real, I think that's a huge uh, opportunity for innovation and seeing kind of who actually gravitates to that, and there'll be a lot of, I think, really fascinating... Yeah learnings from you all on that. You know, I have a larger system question for you all as you have gone through this design process and you've been working in schools in Massachusetts. Because, I, you know, I perceive Massachusetts as being a pretty progressive reform space where there's a lot of energy around education. There's a lot of folks operating. Um, and, I, you know, Denver's kind of similar to this, too. There's a lot of energy in Denver. Um, but there's not a lot of folks working on family and community engagement. And I would love to kind of just get a sense of what's the kind of current beliefs in the Massachusetts space around family and community engagement. Do people prioritize it in state policy, district policy? If if they do, are they focusing on the right stuff? I mean, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, where's the family, where's the family engagement conversation in Massachusetts? Ann mentioned that we are the only ones doing this. You know, this this type of work as an organization. Outside of districts, yeah. And I think it's true to say that we, family engagement is a new field, like across the board, mm-hmm. naming things. Maybe schools and districts were doing things, but they were not naming it family engagement. Maybe it lived like in student engagement, parent engagement. Yeah. But I think we all in this together, family engagement as being a new field. I enter family engagement, I I guess by accident. <laughs> I didn't, you know, it was like not serendipity. A career. Like yeah, like, <laughs> like not a career path that you think about. I'm going to go into education to do family engagement. Yeah. Right. You kind of piece all your experiences right. together with inequity and, um, and your own, you know, journeys to kind of fall into the family engagement yeah. work. And I think the definitions are very fluid, yeah. right? So yeah. Boston Public Schools has had an Office of Community, Community and Family Engagement named all different things, but essentially that yeah. for years. With I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 like mm-hmm. 15 plus years they've yeah. had folks. Um, but I think the understanding of what that is has been changing and changing and changing, right? Yeah. So people say family engagement and they may mean parent education. Yeah. Right, right. Parent university, um, training parents on Mm -hmm. understanding how schools work. Yeah. Um, So that's one 
set of practices. So people do that, right? Yeah. Lots of people do that. Other folks say family engagement and they actually are talking about parent organizing, yeah. right? Which has been around for millennia, yeah. right? So yeah. there's no way that we're saying like, we're the only ones who do this. And, you know, folks might say, well, no, like C-Plan does that yeah. and Mass Advocate. Like there's lots of organizations in Massachusetts that do incredible work organizing yeah. families for policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and to support their own kids. Mm-hmm. But I think from the space of looking at educator practice mm-hmm. um, and that family engagement is part of an educator's responsibility mm-hmm. um, it, it is still fairly new in that it isn't just explaining math to parents, mm-hmm. but that it's in partnering with parents in an equal way to learn from them as well as to help them understand what's going on for their kid. Um, So that, I think, is still fairly new. Um, Massachusetts has in their their educator um, evaluation rubric a family and community engagement standard, Standard. right? Mm -hmm. Standard three. Um, So folks know it's there, but for instance, in Boston, there's no repercussion for not... Reaching proficiency in that, right? If you don't reach proficiency in instruction, then you can be evaluated as not proficient, right? Or needs improvement. But if you got new needs improvement in family engagement, that can't affect your work standing, right? So the artifacts that you have to submit to count as family engagement. Yeah, there's. It's like whatever. whatever. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, do you submit that you sent notes home or do you submit that you had an event and really one parent came to your event? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, what does it mean to engage families even though there's criteria? I know that the Department um, of of Early and Secondary, of Elementary and Secondary Ed has a committee that they're putting together right now Mm. um, to work on defining criteria. Um, more clearly so I think that's great I think people are thinking about it and they want to do it but I think it's still definitely in a developmental phase as far as this idea of how you get schools better at it as opposed to educating families about how schools work and one thing we're trying to do in addition to our school based work is really look at pre-service work much more so we have some great partnerships with leader uh, preparation organizations and some teacher prep organizations but we really want to be in that space very strongly because we feel like if if school leaders in their preparation they have a family engagement um, task as part of their preparation they have to do but if we can get in there and help them really think about how to do that differently um, and with a, a more thoughtful context around what this work's going to mean for them, then when they get into their school, they're more likely to prioritize the it's work. It's a different lift mm-hmm. yeah. at that point, too. Yeah. They've been given tools, they've been exposed to it. Yeah, and, yeah. and how many teachers like go into school and they're like, yeah, I've, now I have this standard three and I'm supposed to do it, I'm supposed to communicate with families. Like, no one's taught me anything about how to do that. Mm-hmm. There's no prep. I only speak from my experience as a teacher. Family engagement was something that I wanted to be good at. Yep. Uh, but no, you know, no one really gave me tools to understand what that meant. Right. Same. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a part of the training, readiness, building the potential work. And if in the absence of tools and resources, you'll, you know, if you're lucky, you'll be creative and do things on your own. Mm-hmm. Are they mm-hmm. good? High impact activities? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Trying. Yeah. Trying. Yeah. But, but that's the power of what you guys are doing, which I think mm-hmm. is very, very exciting. I, you know, kind of what you just said, and reminded me of Glennie's your point around how we're. You know, for all the efforts around families in the education space, it still is a pretty emerging field. Mm-hmm. And I think people are starting to get sharper, sharper with these terms 
family engagement, organizing, advocacy, mobilizing. And right now, I think a lot of folks who aren't in our space put it all into one bucket. Right. They're right. like, oh, you work with families. Right. You're yeah. in that group. And, it's right. like, and I think that also a lot of philanthropy really is excited by the idea of advocacy because they like the idea of provoking change in systems. Mm -hmm. And let's be real, getting 12 people to show up to a board meeting is pretty provocative. It changes mm -hmm. things a lot. Mm -hmm. But is getting 12 people to show up to a board meeting the same as changing thousands of teachers' practice to engage with parents' families every single right. day? That's a totally different right. skill set, totally different orientation to the work. Right. And it's proactive versus reactive, exactly. right? Right. And in, in, in defining family engagement, too, you have schools that do community engagement pretty well, like connecting yes. yeah. families to social services or the, you know, meeting student needs. And and that's still sometimes we call family engagement. Yeah. So right. family engagement as a educator has a, you know, have a lot of power to change dynamic. Yeah. That's where we mean, you know, in our organization by family engagement. Right. That's no, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, and I and, and, I, and I think that it's so, I appreciate you all sharing with the, with us and kind of the listeners, like this journey that you've been on about learning how to do this. Right. Uh, because I think that it also shows, you know, the, why you need to be a learning organization. You guys have been doing it one way, you're pivoting to another way. Um, I'm sure that comes with costs and trade-offs and different things mm -hmm. around those lines. Um, I just want to say that that's a lot of courage. It takes a lot of energy, I can imagine, Thanks. you know, going through something like that. Um, so, again, kind of on that note, one of the questions I always try to ask folks uh, on the podcast is questions around their identity at the intersection of kind of their roles and their works. I think that it's really important to explore that. So, you know, um, we had Riley on last month, and I was kind of asked her some questions about, you know, what, is, what does it mean for her to be a white ally in this work as yeah. in the family engagement space? And would love just to hear from you all uh, your reflections on uh, being um, entrepreneurs that are women. Of color, um, uh, as a white ally, well, you know, how do you how do you think about and how do you bring your identity into this work, and how do you attempt to lead, or how do you lead in the work? Mm -hmm. So for for me, um, um, this work feels very aligned with everything else I do. So mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like a job because I I'm very in tune with the other struggles of our families in Lawrence and. Um, I just discover a new pathway to be an advocate for, for families and students. So for me, being a Latina of color, it means a lot to me to be able to advocate for my friends, for my neighbors, uh, and for my own kids who are in the schools and are experiencing the, the things that I work on. So... Um, I think before I used to call myself like a voice for the voiceless and I'm moving away from that, but maybe voicing in the, on the right table, on the right space, what I need, what, what I hear my other fellow members of the community saying. So mm -hmm. that's how I see myself in the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I definitely, you know, when I do trainings with schools, educators, whatever, um, my primary identity is always as a mom. Like, that's the identity that drives everything I do. Um, and so, you know, Glenn East and I have very different backstories, but we're both parents, right? And we're able to share, like, oh, her little girl's reading books that my daughters read a couple years ago because yeah. they're mm -hmm. a little bit ahead of her age-wise and we both have teenagers and so we, <laughs> we know how that all feels right so that 
identity for me is primary. And I actually came to the work because um, when my kids were younger, uh, I live here in Dorchester, and um, we're a very diverse community, and um, my kids were in a, a Boston public school that was slated for closure, right? So I am this, you know, white progressive mom who knows a lot about politics, uh, has done some work in policy and politics, and uh, lived in D.C., and my husband works in politics, had worked in politics at the time. And so we all of a sudden are in this, like, crazy fight yeah. around our kids' school, um, and we hadn't really taken leadership in the school in the past because as white parents in a predominantly uh, families of color being in the school, we felt like that's not really our space to sort of take over the leadership. I had just become one of the co-chairs of the family council. It was our fourth year at the school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all of a sudden there's a closure yeah. announcement. And, um, and we were just sort of idealistic, like, we're living in the city and our kids are going to diverse school and yay, yeah. like yeah. everything's great. And all of a sudden like this hammer comes down. And, um, and that was a, a, an incredibly powerful moment in our lives as a family and in my life as a professional yeah. um, to realize, okay, so there are things that I, I can do and say here that are going to create noise in a different way than the other families in our kids' school, and why is that? Like, why is it when I call or when I walk up to somebody or when, like, what's happening there? And, like, my education on that moved very quickly through that experience. Um, And what was validated or invalidated because I was white? Well, if I was white, I couldn't possibly be speaking uh, from the experience of families who I'd been in relationship with for four years, right? Mm -hmm. Because they wouldn't possibly, you know, so I couldn't understand that. That was said sometimes to me. And then other times it was said to me, well, you're, you get things or you have power because you're white. So it's like, it was just a very interesting sort of dynamic of like, how do I do this well, right? And advocate for my community because they've put me here. I was elected Mm -hmm. to lead them, but now whether I'm allowed to lead them or not or represent them is very much in question depending on who you ask so it was pretty tricky um but what i mostly learned and my co co co-chair was a woman of color and so we worked really tightly on that and we did a lot to try to make sure all our family's voices were represented Uh, and that was hard because what we saw was the systems were not set up in a way that let other families who didn't have our privilege actually access Mm -hmm. the system so when you have meetings at six o'clock on Wednesday nights downtown, how do low-income families or single parents access those meetings, right, and be able to speak on their own behalf when they have all the different strains of poverty and, and parenting that I can work around because I can hire a babysitter or because I have a partner at home who can stay with the kids, right? So watching that happen and those families and figuring out how to get them in there by using other resources that we had as a school. Okay, teachers are going to stay at school and watch kids. So families then can carpool into the meeting, right? And how do we pull those resources was very um, educational for me. And then watching the sort of other schools that were in that same closure debate struggle where their families are showing up with children because they don't know that that's all they've you know they they have to bring their kids if they're going to be there and they're fi- in 
communities that weren't already set up with good relationships. My yeah. kids were in a school that really prioritized family engagement. So when it was time for us to be in this kind of situation, we already had trusting relationships yeah. in place. Mm-hmm. So we, tr- so families trusted teachers to watch their kids mm-hmm. while they went and did this at night, or they trusted each other to get rides and to help, or they trusted each other to carry each other's messages, right? In a way that we saw other schools two weeks, three weeks after us finally showing up because they had to get organized in ways mm-hmm. that we didn't have to. And then um, they were just being waited out. like. Yeah. public comment would be at 10 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and kids are sleeping in the aisles so that families can give their testimony and then their schools were closed anyway you know and so you feel like what like this is insanity Mm -hmm. so that experience really for our family and then for me like we had some pretty serious conversations about yeah we have the privilege to just walk away from this whole train wreck of a of a system right now and we did right so our kids because they didn't get a placement at another school, uh, went to an independent school, and we sort of committed as a family and said, okay, so they're going to go to an independent school because I can't actually advocate all the time when I'm crying because it's my own kid, right? And then I'm going to focus my energy on figuring this out, and that's when I started to work in City Hall, right, and do that work as a liaison and advocate for families who would get to us. Um, So... It's been a very interesting thing for me to like now work with teachers as a as a white woman and say like as a parent this is what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. And then seeing sometimes that get discounted well but you're different like your your parenting experience isn't like the parenting experience of families of color. Mm-hmm. Well okay that's true. But I'm also telling you as a parent as you a should be parent. giving all families what you would give. Yeah. Right. So that like navigating that and getting credibility on that and figuring out what family what parent trainers should come with us depending on where we are yeah. and what voices we need to have as far as should we have a latina mom should we have a make sure we have a mom who's a single parent yeah. who needs to be in the, the room co-training like ann and i do a lot of co co-training co-training or co-facilitation and i think that works very well for us because uh, when if I show up by myself yeah. and do oh. a training and you're trying to move the needle on some things and sometimes you, you're just right off as that's your agenda, that's your experience and I can't relate to you because that's who you are. So Anne and I work very um, we work very intentionally like mm-hmm. what, how we are going to facilitate certain things really, yeah. um, because the goal is to actually um, spark conversation and dialogue and for people to go into their own lift experience and examine mm-hmm. that and sometimes we think there are some things that are better heard maybe from a white, per- white woman and I can relate to that experience and some other things uh, are easier to be delivered by me so we are mm-hmm. very we're always on that constant mm-hmm. reflection yeah. of Inti- what's the best way yeah, yeah. I mean, because I can say, okay, I was a 23-year-old white teacher yeah. in a classroom that was predominantly kids and families of color, mm-hmm. and I know the mistakes I made, and I know the assumptions I made about families, yeah. and I can name those for the young white women who are mm-hmm. invariably in the room as educators, yeah. right? Yeah. And say, I was you. And, like, I get it. I get what you're trying to do. I get that it's, it, it, 
is confusing to you when a mom of color is angry at you and you're like, I'm a nice person. Mm-hmm. Well, like, yeah, that mom comes with a history of yeah. how many other well-meaning white women That's right. did wrong by her. And so you need to be able to receive that and right. say, it is absolutely justified for this mom to be upset right now and yeah. I can't be personalizing it to me. It's not about me. You know? Well, when we do, uh, Anne and I do a trans uh, ongoing communication. Oh, I love that one. Um, professional <laughs> development unit yeah. and we go over translation and uh, many people relate to my experience of being asked as mm-hmm. a as a as a student to translate for other people, or to be in a room where yeah. you are the only person who can translate, and it's it's better received when I can say I went through that and g- let mm-hmm. me give you some strategies around translation and how you as a translator can advocate for yourself and make sure that the teacher is having the primary relationship with that family. Right. So if you are the only one in a building that is responsible for translation, like you're not responsible for having 200 relationship with the family. Like every teacher has. Yeah. That's their primary responsibility. So uh, yeah. that's another example of how like we tag team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think in, in general, ensuring that like our team has a diversity of experiences yeah. that we can bring, you know, our coaches, one has a, um, worked in high schools right and so has that lens right and then another worked a lot in special education in elementary so Mm -hmm. she can bring those lenses our family trainers are of all different you know backgrounds and life experiences so it's an it's important to us that our training teams can bring different voices into the space so um we have a few minutes left here, and I always have my final wrap-up questions. So my, mm-hmm. my first one that I'd love to ask is, um, what's the favorite place or a very special place to you that you've traveled to or uh, have gone on vacation? Mm. That's the most, the, the most special. The most superlatives. Um, I, this past summer, last summer, I had a really special family trip to Vermont. And I fell in love with the state, and we're going back this year. Yeah, it it felt very free. Our family felt very at ease. Nice. And that's those. It's hard to find places where you're very at ease at this moment. Where did you guys go in Vermont? We went to Chester, Vermont. It's a Uh tiny community. Um, Yeah, so it's it's great to sometimes just be. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's very rare. Mm. Right now, Vermont is so beautiful. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I totally understand what you mean about the peacefulness. There is like a tranquility there that's very mm-hmm. special. Mm-hmm. Landon, you're killing me with this question. Well, what pops into your mind? Yeah, well, like two things pop into sure. my mind. Okay, so because there's like I'm a Gemini, right? People yeah. tell me that means I have like multiple selves that yeah. I need to care for, right? So for my like advocate, change the world mm-hmm. self, like the fighter self. Like, my place is the Lincoln Memorial. And I've brought Glennies to the Lincoln Memorial anytime in I'm in. 20-degree weather. 20-degree yeah, weather. Anytime you guys have gone if it's a hunt, right, right. Let's go. We always have to walk <laughs> to the Lincoln Memorial. And walking there is sort of part of the pilgrimage experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we walk there. and yeah, you, along the mall. Yeah, and you spend mm-hmm. time with Abe. It's better at night when there's fewer That's people. And you just can be quiet and sort of soak in the, like, this was a person who was in serious struggle and carried a lot mm-hmm. and, like, managed to somehow maintain integrity and seemed to, you know, really 
pull on his own moral compass to, to figure out what to do with things that, you know, I'll never face anything that hard. So that's like a space that I feel, feel very restored by. Um, as far as like actually being calm and, and free, you'll like this, but like the desert, I love the desert, which is funny because I, you know, I love the ocean. I love lots of yeah. things, but mm-hmm. if like the desert has a, you know, the, if I'm in the Southwest, it's, it's very um, warm, which I like. Mm-hmm. I hate being cold. And it's so big. There's so much room, yeah. you know? So I don't like being closed spaces. <laughs> so this idea of, like, I'm warm, I can see everything. <laughs> I, like, the colors are all, Sunsets like, this rich, yeah. deep reds and oranges that yeah. just, I just really appreciate that space. So I spent one summer living uh, at Navajo Mountain. Yes, and that was a hard summer, but the space was really um, calming. Yes. Swimming in a canyon, even better. Oh, swimming in a canyon. Because <laughs> then you, canyon you get the water canyon. plus, yeah, right? Water plus thing. The water's very brisk. Uh, yeah. Canyon water. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Mm-hmm. This is kind of at the end of our time, and I just want to say thank you both for thank your you. candid thank minutes you. and your time today. And tell us about 1647. Sorry about the truck. Oh, I, th- I feel like we're in the real Dorchester experience. This is authentic <laughs> Dorchester <laughs> Ave. No, this is wonderful. Dorchester Avenue right here. Um, so uh, thank you all for your time today. And thank you for what you do for parents and families and kids. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining the conversation today. Really appreciated the perspective about pivoting the organization and building the connection of equity, readiness, and family engagement. I think that's really important for almost anyone I've ever talked to in the family engagement space. Keep the suggestions coming in for who we should podcast next. Thanks for everyone engaging in the process and talk to you soon.